So God's grace and his peace are yours on this Christmas Sunday. Actually, it's a Monday, so I just confused myself. On this Christmas Monday, it was a long day yesterday, and there is no sermon outline for you, and so as Pastor Dinger was kind of teasing you about that, that can go either direction, right? There could th- technically be an infinite amount of points, or there could be no points at all. And I'm, re- I'm reminded of, there is a, uh, there's an Eastern uh, bishop that came to Wheaton College, that was my undergraduate degree, and he was trying to uh, commiserate and try to kind of bridge that gap and talk about Eastern Christianity, and since he was a British bishop, he had a lot of evangelical friends. And so as he was there, um, he said, when I was ordained as a bishop or as a priest and as a pastor, they said, hey, when you preach, make sure your sermon has three points. And he just said, well, that's kind of funny. But of course, in evangelical England, that's kind of a common thing. And then he, he goes on to say, and this is at Wheaton College, of course, it's perfectly fine if your sermon only has one point, and many sermons seem to have no point at all. And so that was his introduction on that. And so in this case, there will be a point, and it's our Hebrews passage today. We'll be in particular looking at that. So if you have that in your worship folder and you want to follow along, that Hebrews passage, those first three or four verses, we're going to spend most of our time there. Um, as I've been on this Christmas break, in the high school, we're going to be starting a new class. I've been asked to teach an ancient Greece intensive. So I've been reading a lot of mythology. Lots of mythology, also looking at the plays, the comedies, the tragedies, looking at these Greek heroes and everything else. And it's interesting because there are some themes. You can start to see some really common themes. And if you know mythology, it's not just in ancient Greece. You can look at Norse mythology with Odin and Thor and those characters. You can look at Aztec and Mayan mythology. You can look at Chinese or Japanese mythology. All throughout the world, there are some common themes. And one of the questions that's asked is, what would happen if the gods, quote-unquote, were walking amongst us? What would that look like? And in most cases, it's terrifying. In fact, if a god in ancient Greece took an interest in you, you should run away. Because either that means you're going to lose your kids, or your spouse, or your own life, or something's going to happen to you, and it's probably not going to be good. But you can see that hope or that wonder. What would happen if God came to us, if a God came to us? And there's this longing for something greater and trying to explain, why do the plants look like that? Why do the stars look this way? Why does all this, what's going on here? Well, these great heroes, surely somebody in the past was able to conquer evil, these mythical beasts, these monsters, these creatures that were keeping people in bondage. And so you can see these hints. And these hints inspired authors in the 20th century, like C.S. Lewis or Tolkien, because they believed in the one that actually came true, the one that actually does conquer evil, the one that actually conquers death, and actually comes to us not to terrify us, but to become one of us. And that's an amazing passage. And this is how God has this last word for us in Hebrews 1. And so in this passage, according to many Bible teachers, by the way, and commentators, this is some of the most beautiful Greek in the entire New Testament. It's alliterative. It kind of rhymes. It flows off the mouth. Um, The commentator that I read said it's almost easier to hear it than it is to read it because it's so poetic and it's so rich. And so we are introduced at the very beginning of Hebrews, not with the normal introduction of, I greet you in the name of whatever, or I'm writing to this church. It starts off with a cosmic view of who God is. And we're introduced to a God who speaks. And this is amazing, because instead of a distant God that wound up the universe like a clock and then sat back and said, have fun, we have a God who actually is highly interested and involved in his creation. God is the main speaker in the story of the world, and really, it's the entire universe. Without any introduction or greetings, 
The author starts by saying that in the past, and this is what your passage says here, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So, of course, we've got to ask ourselves, who are the forefathers and who are these prophets? So the forefathers are the forefathers in the faith. So that's all faithful believers in the Old Testament that are part of the one people of God, the people that were trusting in God's promises. They may not have seen Christ clearly. They may not have known and probably didn't know how God was going to accomplish this. Isaiah kind of had a hint, if you read the book of Isaiah, that there was going to be a suffering servant. David, in his sufferings, kind of had a hint. We see that in some of the Psalms. But they really didn't know what that was actually going to look like. And so they were trusting that God, in his promises, was going to fulfill what he had promised all the way back to Adam and Eve, and to Abraham also. And so if you think of Adam and Eve, and Abraham, and Moses, and Isaac, and Jacob, and all those Old Testament prophets, it's those forefathers. And in reality, because we have been grafted into the people of God, there are forefathers. And so, in, and so that's how God spoke to us. And how did he do so? Through prophets. Who are those people? Well, I already mentioned Isaiah, but that would also include the deeds that took place. It would include the exodus. It would include the kings. It would include the building of the temple and God choosing to dwell in the tabernacle or the temple. And so God, uh, not God, uh, the author of Hebrews, God through the author of Hebrews, contrasts that Old Testament with the new. That's how he sets this whole thing up. So there's this one continuous narrative. All the scriptures speak to Christ. It's a false dichotomy. There isn't just an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. The reason we have this Old Testament-New Testament division is because Christ is the answer to all the promises of the Old Testament. It's all those promises, as you heard in the reading that Ralph read for us this morning, all of God's Old Testament promises are yes in Christ. So that division is there because of when Christ comes. It's not because it's two different revelations or two different gods. And so we've been adopted, and the Son, the true God who is the inheritor of all things, is how this passage starts. And that's quite an introduction for Christmas Day, if you think about it. I love this passage for Christmas. And so that's how we we start. And then we get to the next two verses, verses 2 and 3, which are enormously important in the history of the church and what we believe, teach, and confess here at Grace. So let's look at this text together. It says, "...whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe." The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And he has provided purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This passage is a huge deal, not only Christologically, not only in our worship, but also in the history of the church. This, First of all, this passage fulfills what we have in Psalm 2, your Old Testament reading today. God promises a king through David who will rule forever all the nations to the end of the earth. But not just the earth, the entire universe, all of space, time, matter, energy, and beyond. There is not a square inch in the universe that doesn't belong to Christ. He is king by right and he is king by inheritance and has all the authority as the king. And the son has been working with the father since before all of creation. And before time even began to bring about God's purposes, no one else could be such a ruler. That's the first part of this. 
The next part, at Grace Week, uh, at the high school, I call this being a heresy hunter. And the kids get a kick out of this. Mr. Hayes, can we do some heresy hunting? Okay, that sounds fun. And so sometimes I have to say, we got to wait till the end of the day. But we hunt for heresies. This passage is a way that we can avoid that. And that word heresy is kind of funny. When we hear that word, some of us think of, you know, the Spanish Inquisition or just going after people that you disagree with. All heresy simply means is it's something that contradicts the clear teachings of Scripture and the historical witness of the church. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that you have to, like, you know, have a certain bishop or something like that. It just simply means that it's out of touch with what the scriptures teach. That's what it means. And there are a lot of heresies that have cropped up throughout the centuries that this passage helps address. For example, a heresy that you might know, and Pastor Dinger talked about this with Athanasius a little bit, is Arianism, that the Son is a created being. This solves this. This passage does not allow to say that the Son is a created being. Another one is something called modalism, or as one commentator said, is moodalism, like God's in a certain mood, right? Well, today I feel like the Father, but tomorrow I'm going to feel like the Son, and the next day I'm going to feel like the Holy Spirit. So it's almost like God has different suits that he puts on. Here's my son's suit, and here's the Father's suit, zip, right, and that sort of thing. That's not what the Scriptures teach, but that's what some people think, because it is a mystery. It's hard to understand how can Christ be separate from the Father and yet be fully God. Again, this passage addresses this. It says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So in good Lutheran terms, we need to ask that question, what does this mean, (laughs) right? And so the phrase exact representation is from a Greek word that should sound familiar to you in the longer Nicene Creed, which says that the Son is of one substance with the Father. Sound familiar to all of you? The Son is one substance with the Father. Whatever it is that makes up God, Jesus has that. He is that. This means that Christ isn't just a lesser God or a created being or just a mirror of God, but actually is God. He didn't change into God. He didn't evolve into God. He has always been the same, as the author of Hebrews will say later, he has always been the same yesterday, today, and forever. To show how Christ is fully God and yet distinct from the Father, the author uses the image, and I don't know if you know this, this was kind of cool, I didn't realize this, the, that word originally meant being impressed by a seal. So if you had a wax seal, and the king put his signet into the wax seal, and it was the exact representation of the king's seal, and said this is an official word for the king, that's the implication of the word being used. It's pretty neat. Christ is from the Father, God from God, and yet not the Father. It's stamping or pressing a coin with that exact image. When this is added to the other phrase, which says the sun is the radiance of God's glory, like the cloud that led Moses with day, or the pillar of fire by night, or the glory that filled the temple of Solomon, Jesus is that glory. So when you put those two things together, the author could not be more clear that Christ is fully God, always has been, and always will be. So when we confess the Nicene Creed, which says that Christ is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, we're just simply summarizing in a beautiful and memorable way what's being taught here in Hebrews 1. That's all we're doing. So when somebody says, I have no creed but the Bible, I kind of respond, it's like, do you realize that's what we're doing is teaching the Bible? I came from a tradition that was kind of like that. It's like, we don't, we don't have any creed but the Bible. It's like, the creeds are summarizing the scriptures. Do you ever explain the scriptures ever? The answer is, well, yeah. Why is, okay, well, then you have creeds. 
And so this is a common confession. And so we are confessing what's found here in Hebrews 1. In fact, uh, some authors actually say that without this passage, the creed that we believe, teach, and confess may not have been written, or at least not in the way that it is. The sun does not just reflect God's light. He is that light. And now the rest of verse 3. The rest of verse 3 says, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So this image of purification, and Pastor kind of alluded to this earlier also with the Lamb of God in John, it should remind us of the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement. Notice here that Christ sits down. That's a very important phrase here, meaning all the work is finished. It is complete, and he is the king. So there's a double meaning here. He's sitting enthroned. This is a session. This is an enthronement. He is now sitting as the ruler of the universe, but it's also the work of the priest is done. The priest was never done in the Old Testament. Priest is constantly doing things. Priests are dying. Priests are coming and going. Different priests are doing different things. They're burning incense. They're sacrificing. They're dealing with the people. They're, some, in some cases, adjudicating disputes. They're seeing if people are clean from diseases. They're constantly busy. And here we have Jesus sitting down. It is finished, right? As he says on the cross, it is finished. So not only is he sitting down as king, he is sitting down as the perfect and complete priest. Sometimes this is called the session of Christ. There is nothing that you can add to it. So the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ is the complete work of salvation for all who believe. That's what we celebrate this Christmas. That's why we don't need to build another tabernacle or temple. Jesus is enough. Anything added to it or taken away is to insult or to disparage the uh, the finished work of Christ. So to summarize, as we've seen this, God's final word of salvation is Christ, and every promise in the Old Testament is yes in Christ. This is why we are in the last days. We've been in the last days since Jesus arrived. And so, why does this matter then? How do we apply this? Like, what does this mean for us as we see this, this high theology in the book of Hebrews? Well, by his incarnate Son, God has spoken and continues to speak to us. God does not just speak to us by what the Son says, but also by what he does and what he suffers. God speaks his word personally to the world in the whole life of his son, from his conception on earth to his enthronement in heaven. By speaking in and through the incarnate son, God shows himself to the world, for the son is the radiance of God's glory. We, however, hear that conversation only because his son became a man. We are able to hear what God says in and through his son because by his human birth, the Son has joined us in our human life and earth. So we can now boldly confess that God has spoken to us by his Son, as it says in verse 2. Now, I love Luther's quote on this. This is awesome. On Christmas Day, this is one of these great Luther quotes. Luther sometimes has these moments of inspiration. Pastor Dinger can attest to this, where he's like, how did you come up with this, right? I mean, it's just out of nowhere. He just writes, and he writes, and he writes. Sometimes what he writes is hilarious. Sometimes it's crude and rude. And other times, you can clearly tell this is a man who's been inspired by the word of God and is, and is clearly inspired by faith. This is awesome to think about. Why, what does this mean? He, Christ, has purified everything through his body so that because of him, everything that belongs to our natural birth in this life does not damage us at all. But it is considered to be as pure as what belongs to him because through baptism and faith, I have been clothed with his birth and life. Therefore, everything I do is pleasing to God and is properly called a holy walking, standing, eating, drinking, sleeping, waking, etc. In every Christian, 
This becomes a completely holy place, even though he still lives in the flesh and is definitely impure in himself. Through faith, everything about him is pure. This, however, is an alien holiness, and yet our own, because God wills to see nothing that we do in this life as impure in itself. But everything becomes holy, precious, and acceptable to him through, and I underline this, this child. Through this child, who makes the whole world holy through his life. So think about how awesome that is. God doesn't just show up as a superman for a couple of years. That's what a lot of those myths are, right? That God just kind of shows up, does something kind of crazy, something supermanish, something that we couldn't do, but still very flawed. They might rescue you. They also might kill you. They might, you know, recreate the world because they're fighting each other, or they might remake the world in a good way. You just never know. They're capricious. You can't really rely on that. God doesn't show up that way. He goes through all the stages of life for our behalf. This means all stages of human development, starting off as an embryo. That's the part that just that baffles me every time, that the God of the universe was microscopic. I don't know if I can ever fathom that. But he comes in as an embryo, then as a newborn, then a toddler, then a young boy, a preteen, right? Some people call that the awkward stage. A teen, a young adult, to being a full-grown mature man, Every stage of human development is purified by Christ. In fact, some of the early church fathers even speculated that he was older than people thought because he, you know, he had to get old like us too. But then other people said, well, wait a minute. If he never sinned, would he actually age? And they would actually debate back and forth about this. But the point is, is he reached full maturity as a man. And so he goes through every stage of life, including death. It means our sufferings have meaning and an answer that is found on the cross. This baby comes to die as a man so that we might have life. And so to close, I want to go back to our Old Testament reading. There's good news here, right? Go back to Psalm 2 because Hebrews actually quotes. If you caught that, Hebrews 1 quotes Psalm 2. So the author is wanting you to make this connection. This is good news. Look what it says starting in verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. And then it continues, let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. That should comfort you. This is not a laugh of maliciousness. God isn't trying to get after people. We know that from Scripture. God longs for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We know the heart of God. Christ comes for the whole world. This isn't a laugh of, of, of haughtiness or unnecessary pride on God's part. This is God simply saying, really? Do you really think you can stop my plans? And so as you look at the world today, when we see wars, we see governments conspiring, we see crime, we see disease, we see cancer, we see all these different things, we see natural disasters. There is nothing that can stop or prevent the coming of Christ. God just kind of laughs at the plots. Really? Think of how comforting this is as a Christian. If God is for us, who can be against us? On this Christmas, because of faith, we can celebrate a God who comes to us and is for us, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. So Merry Christmas, and to God alone the glory. Amen.